Good morning. For those of you who are new and or those of you who haven't been paying attention, we are an old fellowship group, Old Testament fellowship group. We used to be an old fellowship group. Now we're an Old Testament fellowship group. Uh, and um, between uh, now and the end of time, we're going to be going through the book of Zechariah. And uh, so today, my task is to do a survey, an overview of the entire book of Zechariah. Now, there's two ways that you can view this message. If you, if you like to categorize things and place things in a context, um, one, you can view it as, I'm going to give you the forest. You see the forest as you're driving up or flying up, and then you get out of your vehicle and you walk through the trees. That's what, what's going to happen the rest of the time after today. All right? Uh, I'm going to give you the forest, the overview, and then various people are going to be going through and showing you the trees and perhaps the needles on the branches periodically uh, to get a a closer look at it. But I'm going to give you sort of the overview. The other way to look at it is a preview of coming attractions, Um, because the guys that we have that are going to be walking through these things are are, uh, talented and... Um, knowledgeable guides through the trees. So those are the two ways to sort of view this message. So my job, my task is to take us through the whole book, which would be no problem. Uh, I'll finish at least by 4 o'clock. Um, okay, there we go. All right, so... Uh, This morning, we read in the main service uh, from the book of Revelation, and some of the songs that we sang also pointed ahead to that, and Zechariah is uh, a book that points ahead to that as well, to future glory. And so that's what we want to look at today. And before we get started, let me just mention a couple of things you might find interesting, uh, in case you're ever on Jeopardy. Uh, I would ask if we had more time, I would ask for input and let people guess, but we don't have time, so I'll just tell you. Uh, The book of Zechariah is actually quoted or alluded to 71 times in the New Testament. 71 times. About a third of those are in the Gospels, uh, but 31 times in the book of Revelation. The book of Zechariah is either quoted or alluded to. And there are a number of familiar images and phrases Uh, in the book of Zechariah. And being a phraser, I pay attention to those things. Um, So let's get started and walk uh, through, hopefully not sprint through, walk through at a a brisk pace, uh, the book of Zechariah. Now last week, Abner started and did the first six verses of Zechariah. And uh, so I'm not going to uh, repeat much about that. Uh, He mostly got it right. Um, but I do want to call your attention to verse 3. So look at Zechariah. By the way, Zechariah, if you go to the book of Matthew, where everybody knows where that is, you know, where the Christmas story is, and then go back two books, okay? It's the next to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. And Abner talked about what that means and so forth last week. But I wanted to point out verse 3, because it's, uh, to me... Those who were in my Bible study, when I taught through, I taught actually through the whole Bible a book per lesson, uh, and each time I picked out a key verse um, that you could sort of hang your hat on for each book. And for me, the key verse of Zechariah is right in the beginning of verse 3, which says this, Therefore, say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you says the Lord of hosts. Return to me. And what this tells us is that Yahweh wants to be their God. Yahweh wants to be their God, even though they have rejected him. And uh, that, to me, opens up the whole notion of the book of Zechariah. So um, let's go to uh, verse 7. Verse 7. And I want to read this verse and talk about this for just a moment. 
On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, as follows. Now, this is pretty similar to the first verse of Zechariah that Abner took us through last time. But the thing I want to point out here, a little bit different than than what Abner did, um, immediately following this, we begin a series of eight visions in the book of Zechariah. And um, I want you to note the detail that is in this, the very practical down-to-earth detail, telling us exactly who is the ruler at the time, what day, what month, uh, so on and so forth, the various individuals involved. And the reason this matters is we're about to go into visions, okay? Visions, which are, are, are spiritual um, revelations from God that are strange and hard to understand and so forth. And we're going to clear up some of that hopefully today. But my point is this. This is not introduced in any way like mythology. This is not... You don't read things like this when you read mythology. I teach both ancient Greek and ancient Roman history, and we talk a lot about ancient Greek and Roman mythology, and mythology is written very differently. You don't have any of these uh, concrete details when you're introducing mythology. Uh, it's, it's very nebulous and floating in the air. This is very down-to-earth, very concrete. And it's written this way because this is not mythology. This is an actual account of actual visions that God gave to the prophet Zechariah. All right, so chapters 1 to 6 of Zechariah consists of eight visions that Zechariah is given. And the way they're introduced is, look at verse 8, I saw. Each of these visions is introduced basically by, I saw. Now, it's a vision, it's not a dream. This is uh, something that happens when Zechariah is awake. Okay, he's not dreaming, he's not, uh, didn't, you know, have something bad for dinner and his stomach's playing games with him. He's awake, he's conscious, and God is giving him a vision. He's seeing things that God shows to him. And that's critically important to look at. But let's look at verse 8. I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse. And he was standing among the myrtle trees, which were in the ravine, with red sorrel and white horses behind him. Okay, you got that, right? You know exactly what's going on. All right, so let's just break this down a little bit. We're not going to, do, we're not going to break everything down because the guys are going to do that throughout the, the next several months. But just to introduce a couple of important things here. So I saw means it's a revelation from God, a vision from God. Um, I saw a man, and the man here is um, Christ. This is the Messiah, okay? And the red here indicates uh, judgment, blood, okay? Just think of blood and then connect that with judgment. The white indicates, um, in, the, in the horse, the white horses indicates victory, and the sorrel is a mixture of blood and victorious. So the picture that's being done here is that Christ the Messiah is here, and there's something going on with judgment, and it produces victory, Okay, so that's the basic introductory idea. The myrtle trees here, uh, and I don't have time to explain it, but somebody will next week. The myrtle trees represent Israel. And then the ravine that is talked about is the fact that Israel is, it's, uh, the myrtle trees are in the ravine. What is a ravine? Is it a high place or a low place? It's a low place. The humiliation and degradation of Israel is the context here. So that's what verse 8 tells us. Uh, Verse 9 introduces an angel who 
is with Zechariah through most of the book, and this angel uh, you have to appreciate, and Zechariah certainly appreciated, because he's an interpreting angel who helps Zechariah understand what's going on. And if Zechariah doesn't know what's going on, the chances that we understand it are not very good. So the angel is there to help him understand what he's seeing, what he's, what he's, uh, the visions that he's been given. The Lord then is giving him an angel to help him to understand things. He's not just showing him a bunch of strange things and then uh, just saying, well, I hope he figures it out. So that angel is important. There are several angels involved here in the book, and this is a distinct one. This is one who, who stands next to Zechariah and says, oh yeah, well, this means that, and he whispers in his ear, okay? Then there's a different angel in verses 10 and 11, which is the angel of the Lord. Look at verse 10. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. All right, now notice it starts out in verse 10 by saying, The man who is standing among the myrtle trees, which we already saw in verse 8, and then it says, The angel of the Lord who is standing among the myrtle trees, that's because the man is Christ, the Messiah, who is also the angel of the Lord. This is another Christophany in the Old Testament um, of seeing Christ, the second person of the Trinity, in the Old Testament. And notice that the angels report to him. He's in charge. Okay. Um, then verse 12, Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, with which thou hast been indignant these seventy years? The angel, uh, the angel of the Lord is interceding on behalf of Israel. Uh, Jesus, of course, today intercedes for us uh, before the throne of God. Here he's interceding for Israel. Uh, the 70 years refers to the length of exile. The Israel, Israelites, as we've talked about already, are coming back from exile. They've been in exile for 70 years. So that's what the 70 is about. All right. Then in verses 13 through 17, uh, the Lord speaks to the interpreting angel who explains in verses 14 to 17 what it is all about. And I'm just going to summarize. Verse 14, God loves Jerusalem. I'm not keeping up. You're doing a good job back there, though. (laughs) Verses 14 to 17, God loves Jerusalem in verse 14. Verse 15, God is angry with the nations. All right? And then verses 16 and 17, God will again choose Israel, Jerusalem, and will again prosper Jerusalem. Uh, And that's indicated by the line of Jerusalem extending, which is the line around Jerusalem, which says that that Israel is going to grow and prosper. All right? So that's the rest of that vision. So that's vision number one. Then we move to vision number two, which starts in verse 18. Now remember, back in verse 8, it it said the vision was introduced by I saw, right? In verse 18, it says, then I lifted up my eyes and looked. And so this is, again, the introduction of a vision. The second vision, this is a vision of judgment, Verse 18, he says, Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there were four horns. So there was Steve Becknell on the French. There was... No. These are not horns like... These are horns like horns on an animal. Okay, And these four horns represent four empires. Four empires. And these are the four, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And so this is a prophecy explaining these great empires that are going to rise. And uh, these four horns, uh, also in in the book of Revelation, not coincidentally, horns are used for rulers and empires and so forth. It's a regular thing throughout Scripture. And uh, so these four empires will exist. 
And then verses 20 and 21, we're introduced to four craftsmen who are wielders of hammers. And this refers to those empires being overthrown, those horns being crushed by hammers. Okay? So you have four horns and four craftsmen wielding hammers who bash in the horns uh, along the way. And the last of these craftsmen is the Messiah. Okay? So that's that judgment number two. It's a judgment vision. All right? Vision number three, beginning of chapter two. Look at the beginning of chapter two, verse one. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked. Here's another vision. And behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. This man is once again Christ. This is Christ the Messiah. And he has a measuring line because he's laying out the dimensions of future Jerusalem. Just like you would have a measuring line or, or you know, a, some type of uh, measuring stick to measure something, Likewise, here Christ is measuring the dimensions of future future Jerusalem to show the growth and expansion of Jerusalem. And so that's what verses 2 through 4 talk about, the growth and prosperity of Jerusalem. And then verse 5 indicates that God will protect his people. God will, let's look at verse 5. I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. So God will protect Jerusalem, but also his glory will be present among them. Now this obviously is a very comforting and encouraging thought for them because, remember, the glory of the Lord had left. The glory of the Lord had left the temple in Ezekiel, and now God is saying, my glory is going to come back and be present with you. Okay? Then, um, let's go to verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will plunder for their slaves. They will be plunder for their slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Now there's a lot of his and he and me and and Lord of hosts and so forth. This verse is is a key Trinity verse in the Old Testament. Because the second person of the Trinity, the Messiah, Christ, is sent by Yahweh, the first person of the Trinity. Uh, otherwise, the verses don't make any sense. He sent me, and I am like him, and so on. Uh, it doesn't work. So this is a key Trinity verse. The Messiah is sent by Yahweh for glory and for judgment. For glory and for judgment. Um. And the apple of, of his eye thing here, the apple of his eye is the pupil. Okay? Now, I can relate to this. Uh, no, my wife's saying no. <laughs> I had surgery on my eye, and I had to hold still while the doctor took a probe and stuck it into my pupil, into my eye, and then stuck another thing in there and froze my eyeball. You know that stuff, you, the can of stuff you can buy, that you freeze stuff? He froze my eyeball. He had a thing, he was going, shh, shh, shh. Um, So I know all about the pupil. <laughs> and I have pupils every semester. So <laughs> anyway, uh, what he's saying here is the nations have basically poked God in the eye. That's what he's saying. The nations have poked God in the eye. Anyone who touches Israel is poking God in the eye. He is, um, they are the apple of his eye. All right, then verses 10 to 13, 
Um, once again, he talks about how he, the Messiah, will dwell with his people in the millennium. And again, this is a very comforting thing to know that God is going to return and be with his people. So that's the third vision. We go to the fourth vision in chapter 3. And let's look at the first two verses here in chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? All right, so what's going on here? Uh, Joshua is the, the high priest. He represents Israel here. Standing before is a, is a reference to the priestly duties. When the priests would do their thing, they would be standing before the altar of God. In this case, he's standing before uh, God himself as a judge. And notice, or through the, to the angel of the Lord, who is God? He's standing before the angel of the Lord, who is the judge here in this case. Uh, and those of you who are familiar with, with um, the book of Revelation and other, and other uh, books know that Christ, all judgment is ultimately given to Christ. He's going to be the judge. He's not just the meek and mild uh, guy that the, that the media try to pass off on people or these uh, um, funky paintings that people do of these, this real kind of metro guy uh, with long hair that looks kind of nice and pleasant. He's, he is that, in a sense, but he's going to be the judge. He's going to be the judge. And so Israel, then, is standing before the angel of the Lord, Christ, the judge, and it's like a court scene, and Satan is the prosecutor. Satan is the prosecutor, and he is, um, he is accusing... Israel. And notice that the Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Is, not a brand, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Notice that Israel doesn't say anything. Joshua doesn't say anything, and the judge rules in his favor. Why doesn't Joshua say anything? Because he knows he's guilty. He has nothing to say. But the Messiah, here as the angel of the Lord, is judging in his favor because of the work that he's going to do on his behalf. So this is another scene sort of like when you have uh, in the book of Job, where Satan is going and accusing Job, right? And so this is one of those scenes where you have a courtroom scene where Satan is accusing. And this is going on a lot right now. Satan is standing before God, and he's accusing you and me. And Christ is interceding on our behalf and saying, leave that guy alone, I died for him. Leave that woman alone, I died for her. So this is that type of thing. Uh, and that why, what's this uh, curious phrase, a brand plucked from the fire? Uh, this is referring to God repeatedly saving Israel, pulling them out of the fire. A brand is a, like a, a stick pulled out of the fire. All right, then verse 3 of chapter 3, it says, Now Joshua, that's Israel, was clothed with filthy, filthy garments standing before the angel. And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Well, what's that all about? Well, he tells us. Again, he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. So the filthy garments refers to the fact that Israel is covered with sin. But those garments are going to be removed and replaced with a festal robe. This symbolizes the future salvation and atonement of Israel. The future salvation of Israel. Um, and then, he, then it's verse 5 says, let them put a clean turban 
on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. The clean turban refers to the restoration of Israel's relation with God, the priestly. This is a priestly turban. And so they're going to become the actual priestly nation that Israel was supposed to be in the beginning. Uh, In the very beginning, back in Exodus, they were called the kingdom of priests to God, and they choked. And now, ultimately, in the end, God is going to make them into that priestly nation. Uh, Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 2 about how we as believers are also a priestly nation to God. So uh, that's what the clean turban is about. And uh, notice, um, in, well, I should tell you, if you go back to Exodus 28, verses 36 and 37, if you're interested, we learn that holy to the Lord is inscribed on the priest's turban. Exodus 28, 36 to 37 Holy to the Lord is inscribed on the priest's turban, and that is now going to be given to Israel because they will be holy to the Lord. All right, uh, moving to verses 6 through 10. The angel of the Lord, Messiah, Christ, delivers a message to Joshua from Yahweh about himself. Verse 7, he says, Uh, If you will walk in my ways, you'll be rewarded. In verse 8, he talks about other priests. Um, And these other priests are symbolic of the future Israel. And then at the end of verse 8, he says, I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch. My servant, the branch. Those of you who are sojourners recognize the branch uh, element right away. Uh, And so this is a reference again to the Messiah who is going to clean uh, future Israel and uh, reward them ultimately. Joshua is not the branch here. The sin is not removed or the kingdom established in his day. That is yet to come. All right. And we could spend a long time on the branch idea, but I don't have a long time, so someone else will. Verse 9. Just to kind of fill in some of these gaps so you have some idea when you read through it. Um, Verse 9 says, For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. Like, that sounds weird, man. Is that like in Revelation, or what's the deal? Uh, It is the kind of thing that you'd find in Revelation because it's a vision. The stone here is the Messiah. Uh, You may be familiar with other passages in the Pauline epistles where Christ is talked about as the stone uh, on which the church is built. Here it's the Messiah. Seven eyes refers to perfect knowledge. The fact that this Messiah will have perfect knowledge. And how does the Messiah have perfect knowledge? Because he's God. Only God has perfect knowledge. Um, And at the end of that verse it says, I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. And then verse 10 says, In that day, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Um, This is a reference to when Israel believes. When Israel believes. The vine and fig tree uh, motif or, or metaphor is throughout the Old Testament for peace and prosperity. And this is a reference to the millennial kingdom when Israel has finally believed and looked on him whom they have pierced, which we'll see more about later, and uh, they believe. All right, so that's the fourth vision. The fifth vision begins in chapter 4. Um then look at verse 1, Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep, and he said to me, What do you see? So again, he's not sleeping, he's awakened from sleep, 
And the angel says, what do you see? He's, he's seeing things. He's seeing a vision. Uh, and so that's the fifth vision, which is about Zerubbabel and rebuilding the temple. Those of you who've been here the last several weeks, uh, or were here for Haggai, know about Zerubbabel and rebuilding the temple. And Zechariah and, and uh, Haggai are uh, at the same time, and much of the prophecies relate to the same things. Zerubbabel, for those of you who weren't here, is not only the civil leader at this point, but he's also a descendant of David. If Israel had a king, he would be the king. He's the descendant. Um, so this is about him. Uh, verses 2 and 3 talk about a lampstand and trees providing oil for light. Um, and I'll leave it to whoever does that passage to deal with it, because there are several options concerning this uh, lampstand. But I can tell you this, the trees providing oil for the light, that's a picture of abundance. Uh, that these trees, will, Basically, these trees will be sort of um, connected. It's almost like the trees are, are a, a blood transfusion connected to the body of the temple, the tr- and they're constantly flowing uh, instead of having the middleman have to take the olive oil and then process it and put it, at blah, 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 they're just connected and just there's a constant inflow of um, abundant oil for the light. And then I like verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4. Uh, they don't have much to do with the vision, but I like them. Look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4. Then I answered, this is Zechariah speaking, Then I answered and said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these? What's going on here? That's what I'm doing, right? And so the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, You don't know what these are? And I said, No. And I appreciate that, because then the angel has to explain. And then we get to know. So that's a a nice little transition there, right? Uh, Zechariah is a normal human being, in addition to being a prophet. And so, hey, I don't get what's going on. Okay, those of you who are master's university students, remember that in class. If you don't know what's going on, ask. Okay, you're the one who helps the rest of the class. Okay, you actually get credit in my class if you ask questions. Because in a normal class size, there's four or five other students who have the same question and they just don't have the hair to ask it. And so you're actually helping them learn as well. And Zechariah is helping us learn here by asking, what's going on? What does this mean? What's, what's happening? And so the angel explains it. So what does he explain? Verses 6 and 7, it is that God will accomplish his purpose through Zerubbabel via his Holy Spirit. Zerubbabel is going to be a player here God is going to accomplish his purpose through Zerubbabel, but it is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I mentioned to you that there are familiar images and phrases and so forth in the book of Zechariah. You might recognize this from verse 6. Then he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's a very familiar phrase. Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit. And we see that actually in the New, in the New Testament as well. And so, uh, don't worry about it. God will accomplish His purpose. And, um, and then verse 7 talks about a mountain. The mountain here represents opposition. So God will accomplish His purpose through Zerubbabel via His Spirit, and no opposition can stand in the way. It can be a mountain of opposition and it won't matter. God will accomplish what he's doing. And then it talks about a top stone, and that refers to the completion of the temple. So Zerubbabel is going to complete the temple. There will be opposition, a mountain of opposition, but it won't matter. Because it's not really Zerubbabel doing it, it is God doing it through Zerubbabel and the power of his spirit. And then verse 9 is interesting. It says, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. 
Hmm, interesting. God is giving signposts along the way to tell Zechariah, here's what will affirm to you that, this, that I have actually come to you and this is real. There are certain things to look for, and this isn't the only one in the book, in which God says, this will be a sign to you. And so what this is, is encouragement to Zechariah, right? Uh, I'm going to these people with this kind of strange message. How do I know that this is for real? And God says, well, look for this to happen, and that will tell you this is I sent you. And then look for this to happen, and when it does, that will tell you I sent you. Okay? Um, and it also, as Abner was talking about last time, about they, some of them were concerned that the temple didn't look very impressive. Um, if you look at verse 10, "...who has despised the day of small things, but these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth." This is referring to angels. The temple will seem small, but the angels will rejoice." The angels will rejoice. And it's a prefiguring of the Messianic temple, ultimately. Uh, Verses 11 to 14 talks about two olive trees. The olive trees here represent the, the two offices of king and priest. King and priest. And then it talks about the branches or anointed ones. That's referring to Zerubbabel, who would be the king, if there were a king, the descendant of David, and Joshua, who is the high priest. So they are the branches or the anointed ones of these two offices. So you have an office as a tree. Just think of it this way. You have an office that's a tree, And it has various branches because there are various people who hold that office down through the years. So at this point, in the olive tree, Zerubbabel is the branch of the tree that is a kingly tree, and Joshua is the the current branch of the priestly tree. Okay? So the priestly tree started with Aaron, and at this point, Joshua is the branch. There's, a, there's an Aaron branch. It's gotten a little older. Uh, and then there's now the, the new shoot, the new branch, which is Joshua. Um, and then, by the way, at the end of that verse, it refers to the Lord of the whole earth, which is a millennial term. We keep getting these little millennial uh, tidbits tossed in here before it comes to a culmination later in the book. All right, so this is the fifth vision. It's about Zerubbabel and rebuilding the temple and the significance of that and the fact that this is one of the markers for Zechariah to recognize that God has in fact sent him and given him this message. Which brings us to the sixth vision. Um, I was breathing a sigh of relief last week when Abner was doing a basic introduction and he said, you know, we're going to find all kinds of weird things in this book. And he started listing stuff and I'm checking them off in my head. Okay, I got that, I got that, I got Okay, that's good. One of them was the flying scroll. Remember that one? The flying, we're familiar with, with uh, Rocky the flying squirrel. <laughs> we're familiar with the flying nun, Sally Field. Some of us are. Uh... Here we have the flying scroll, okay? So what is going on here? So this is vision six. Vision six is the flying scroll, and it's about cleansing. And the scroll is the word of God. It's the law, okay? And chapter five, verses one through four introduces this. Um, and a couple of things about this without spending a lot of time as someone else will. It gives the dimensions of this flying scroll. It tells us how big it is, okay? Uh, you have to know, you know where it's going to fit in the wall in your living room. No. Um, it, it, it gives us the specific dimensions, and it's not accidental. There's a shock. 
something in the Bible that is specific, that God cares about in detail. And that is, this is the same uh, size as the holy place in the tabernacle. Okay? This flying scroll. It's, it, for those of you who are wondering, and it doesn't say it in, in our language, so it's 30 feet by 15 feet. 30 feet by 15 feet, this flying scroll. It's a symbol of judgment for disobedience. Verse 4 tells us there is no escape from it. Why is it so large? There's no excuse. Everyone can see it. This is a 30 foot by 15 foot scroll flying around. There's no excuse. Everybody's going to see it and everybody's going to make sure everybody sees it, right? Did you see? Wow, look at that. Hey, look at. So the bottom line is there's no excuse. Everyone will see it and it deals with individuals. Two commandments are named. Of the Ten Commandments, the third and the eighth, they just represent the whole. They're in two categories of commandments, one from each category to say that it's talking about the whole Word of God, the whole law of God. Now that we got that vision out of the way, we can get back to normal. Starting in verse 6 of chapter 5. And I said, what is it? And he said, this is the ephah going forth. Again, he said, this is their appearance in all the land. Behold, a lead cover was lifted up. This is a woman sitting inside the ephah. The ephah here is a basket, basically. So the next vision is kind of a normal one that you'd see every day. A woman in a basket. (laughs) And this is also a cleansing vision. All right? So, who's this woman? Well, she's identified as wickedness in verse 8. This is wickedness. The woman represents wickedness. The lead cover is a heavy restraint on wickedness. So you have a basket with wickedness in the basket, and there's a heavy lead cover on the basket to restrain that wickedness. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, tough. You're out of luck, because that's the best I can do. So the woman is wickedness in the basket, and a heavy lid is placed on it to restrain wickedness. And then it gets better. You get two women who are like storks. Verse 9, Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and there are two women, 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 (laughs) two women coming out of the wind in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the ephah, the basket, between the earth and the heavens. So two women-like storks come along. What is going on here? All right, so biblically speaking, and I don't have time to go into the details of it, a stork is an an agent of evil. It's an unclean animal, which is an agent of evil. And so these two agents of evil, uh, women-like storks, come to take away the basket. Why do they take away the basket? If they're agents of evil and it's wickedness, why don't they want to leave it there? Because they take it to Shinar, it tells us in verse 11, they take it there to build a temple for her in the land of Shinar. They take away the wickedness so that they can build a temple to wickedness and have the wickedness there to celebrate it and to worship it. And where is Shinar? Ever heard of Babylon? That's where it goes. So the wickedness is taken to Babylon to be praised, to be put on a pedestal. But the nice thing is, it's removal of wickedness from the land, from Israel. And so this is also a promise of that, that God is going to remove the wickedness from the land. All right, that's vision number seven. Those two are pretty normal. Uh, (laughs) So we come to vision eight, the last of the eight visions. This is a vision of judgment and peace. 
Judgment first and then peace. Chapter 6 is the eighth vision. The first eight verses are about uh, this bronze. Uh, Bronze uh, chariots coming out between the mountains, and the mountains were bronze mountains. So the bronze here is symbolic of judgment. Uh, If you go back and look at these other Old Testament passages that I've listed here, uh, you'll see a bronze serpent, you'll see a bronze altar. Bronze represents uh, judgment that is is needed. The two mountains, um, whoever teaches this for reals will tell us which of these is correct. I can't figure it out. It's either Zion and the Mount of Olives, or... It's the Mount of Olives itself, which is split at the end of the book of Zechariah. I've seen both of them, and both of them look reasonable to me, so I'm going to wait for the real experts to deal with it. Um, So there's a valley of judgment, either way, whichever it is, there's a valley of judgment between these two mountains, either Zion and Mount Zion and Mount of Olives, or the two halves of the Mount of Olives after it splits. Okay, There is judgment in this valley. Uh, and it talks about uh, chariots here, red and black and white. That sounds familiar. It goes back to the beginning of the book. And you've got judgment here. The black refers to death. Um, the red we already talked about is blood or judgment. The white is victory. So these chariots here are angelic agents dealing judgment. In the, in the first chapter, you had horses. In this chapter, you have chariots. Um, and uh, notice verse 8, though, at the end of that opening section. Verse 8, Then he cried out to me and spoke to me, saying, See, those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. The judgment that is done here satisfies the Lord. And this allows the peace of Messiah. This judgment has to take place to satisfy God's wrath, Yahweh's wrath. Then verses 9 to 15, you have three exiles returning from Babylon to help rebuild. Um, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah in verse 10. In verse 11, it says, Take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. but uh, did it die? Battery die? Hello? This isn't on either. Oh, turn it on. Will that help? (laughs) I was on already because the light was already on. It was on already, but it's not working either. All right, so <laughs> make sure I didn't goof something here. Hello? Ah, this one works. Um, no? Mike is back on, like I said. <laughs> We're in the wrong prophet here. We should be in the prophet Micah. I'm actually proud of that one. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have to repent later. Okay. Where was I? I lost, I lost my page. <laughs> Got my pages mixed up. I'm talking to the child children because they know what that means. Um, all right. So, anyway, back to verse 11 of chapter 6. 
take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the high priest? Wait, that, that's got to be wrong, right? Because you don't put crowns on the priest. Crown goes on the king. The priest gets a turban, but not a crown. Well, that's the idea here. This is a symbolic crowning of the high priest. This is a prophecy about the Messiah uniting the two offices of king and priest. Christ, the Messiah, uniting the two offices of king and priest. And that's what verse 13 says as well. Look at verse 13. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. There's no separation of church and state in the end. By the way, pet peeve, it's not a biblical concept, but don't get me started. Um, There's no separation of the two offices ultimately. The Messiah will bring them together. Okay, And this is a reference to that, the symbolic crowning there. The branch, the Messiah, verses 12 and 13, will build the millennial temple, and uh, he will then sit on his throne as both king and priest, high priest. Verse 15 tells us, again, tells Zechariah again, that when these things happen, this will again confirm that you are my prophet. So here's another place where Zechariah is sort of bolstered to say, here's other things to look for. When these happen, you know that I sent you. The temple is built, the crown is displayed, and uh, so it confirms Zechariah as God's prophet. All right, Uh, chapter 7 starts the second section of Zechariah. The first section is these eight visions. The second section is two sermons two sermons, that's chapters 7 and 8. After these two years, this is two years later now, two years later than the visions, two years later than there are two sermons that are given. That is, the word of the Lord came. You see that in chapter 7, verse 1, and then chapter 7, verse 8, the word of the Lord came. That's uh, sermons. The first one, uh, a delegation from false worshipers come and say, should we we keep doing the fasts now that the temple is rebuilt? And verses 4 through 7, God indicates that he knows that their hearts are not right. And he reminds them in verses 9 to 14 why he's punished them. He wants obedience, not ritual. The issue isn't the ritual. The issue is obedience. And that's what verses 9 to 14 are about. Then um, the second sermon is in chapter 8. It's about the reign of the Messiah. Um, And verses 18 and 19 of chapter 8 it, in verse 19, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the ten months will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. So love, truth, and peace. The feast that these guys, these false worshipers were asking about, do we still have to do this stuff, uh, will become feasts of joy rather than um, just a, a, a practice that they have to do as a ritual. So it answers the question back in chapter 7, verse 3. Verses 20 to 23 in chapter 8 are about the millennial kingdom. All nations will seek God. There will be a shining light and source of blessing, which is Israel in the millennial kingdom, and Israel will be what they were supposed to be. Then the third part of the book of Zechariah, there are two oracles two oracles of God's Son. Two oracles of God's Son. 
These are introduced differently. We, saw, we had, I saw when it was visions. We had the word of the Lord came when it was sermons. Now we have the burden of the Lord. The burden of the Lord, which is a prophecy. Uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 11, is judgment on the nations and God defending Israel. I wish I had more time because I teach ancient Greek history and I could tell you about the first eight verses are about Alexander the Great. Um, and if you know history, you know what happened, fulfills exactly what was said here. But we don't have time. So uh, trust me. <laughs> um, and then verses 9 to 17 are about the Messiah. Verse 9 introduces his first coming. And you're familiar with this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so you see this quoted in Matthew and in John for Christ's entry into Jerusalem as he comes mounted on a colt. Uh, Verses 10 and following are about his second coming. Okay, so we jump from verse 9 to verse 10, from the first coming to the second coming. And the rest of chapter 9 is that. The mystery of the church is between the verses of verses 9 and 10. It's in the margin between the two. Um, which is why people had difficulty for many years figuring out what was going on here, because there was a jump and they didn't understand there was time frame in between. But there is. Chapter 10 is about the millennium. Verse 1 tells us that Israel will be blessed. Verse 3, the Lord of hosts has visited his flock. This again, a very comforting message to the Israelites who have been 70 years in exile and for whom they knew the glory of the Lord had departed. But he is going to visit his flock. Verse 5, the Lord will be with them. The Lord will be with them. Again, God is coming to be with his people. Verse 6, they will be as though they had not rejected him. All's going to be made right. It will be as though they had not rejected him. Verse 7, their heart will rejoice in the Lord. Verse 8, I have redeemed them. God tells them, I have redeemed them. Verse 9, they will remember me in far countries. Verse 12, in his name they will walk. Uh, In his name they will walk. So you have all of these promises and all these reassurances in chapter 10 and in, in reference to the millennial kingdom, the millennium. Everybody done with their phones? I got to go. All right. Chapter 11 is about the rejection of the Messiah in his first coming. The first six verses are about the judgment on Israel inflicted by Rome. And then in... Um, verses 4 to uh, 14. Verses 4 to 14, um, Zechariah plays the part of a shepherd. God tells him to be a shepherd because he's acting out what's going to happen, which is the rejection of the true shepherd. And Zechariah gets to feel the rejection in a sense that the Messiah will, will feel when he is rejected. You have favor and union, these two staffs that are introduced. Favor refers to grace or blessing, as you think of as favor, union, unity. And um, this is brought by Christ, but it's rejected. There are three shepherds talked about in verse 8. I know it's fast, but we're out of time. Three three shepherds in verse 8. This refers to the priests, the scribes, and the elders who all did what? To Christ. Rejected him. Okay? So you have these underling shepherds who are rejecting the great shepherd. Uh, they reject him. 
So their offices are eliminated, and ultimately Jesus is the only priest. And then you have the Judas prophecy in chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. When they reject him, I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out how much? 30 shekels of silver as my wages. And then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. God's being ironic here, the magnificent price. It's actually the price of a slave. I don't know if you knew that. 30 pieces of silver is the price of a slave. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Remember when Judas took the money? uh, He said, I don't want the money. And they gave it to him. And so he threw it into the temple and they used it to buy what? A potter's field. This is all referenced in the New Testament when when these prophecies uh, come to be fulfilled. They rejected the true shepherd, uh, for the value of a slave. And so in verses 15 to 17 in chapter 11, God gives them a foolish shepherd. The foolish shepherd is the Antichrist. And so you have prophecy of the Antichrist here in verses 15 to 17, the worthless shepherd, the foolish shepherd, and how he attacks the sheep rather than caring for them as the true shepherd did. So that's the first oracle. The second oracle, chapters 12 to 14. Chapter 12 is about Armageddon and the siege of Jerusalem. It's about the siege of Jerusalem and Armageddon. God makes Jerusalem impregnable. Uh, Israel finally recognizes that it's God defending them. God defends them. The Spirit brings grace and repentance. We have another um, great verse concerning the Trinity in this section, uh, which is verse 10. Uh, And there's true repentance by everyone individually. And there's a real emphasis there that whoever does this for reals will (laughs) emphasize. So the Spirit brings grace and repentance. Then chapter 13 is about the salvation and purification of Israel. The salvation and purification of Israel uh, for all of them, the people, the leaders, etc. False religion and prophecy is ended. The true shepherd makes his sacrifice. Uh, and note that he is, uh, he is referred to in chapter 13 uh, as my associate. God calls him my associate, in, uh, which means my equal. He is called my shepherd there in verse 7. He is called my associate. And then that, this also talks about striking the shepherd so that the sheep are scattered. And that, of course, is what happens as well at Christ fulfills when he has struck down the disciples scatter. And this passage is referred to in the New Testament uh, in that regard. So all of that is, is uh, prophesied here. But a remnant of Israel believes. A remnant of Israel endures. It, chapter 12, verse 10 also refers to that. Um, And here again, we have a jump from the first coming to the second coming in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 13. But the key thing here is about the shepherd, the true shepherd being rejected, but nonetheless providing salvation and purification for Israel. And then finally, just when you thought it would never get there. uh, Finally, in chapter 14, we have the consummation of all things. Verses 1 and 2 talk about the day of the Lord. And that's, of course, an apocalyptic phrase, refers to judgment. The nations besiege Jerusalem, and they're there. They don't know it, but they're there to be judged. And that's what's going to happen. Then in verses uh, 3 to 5, God enters the battle. God enters the fight. 
Look at verse 3, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And then verse 4, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. This is referring to Christ's return. Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives. So Yahweh is involved and the Messiah is involved as well. Uh, And it talks about um, Jesus and his holy ones in verses 3 to 5. And then in verses 6 and 7, the lights go out, uh, and only Christ's glory is there as a light. And then verses 9 through 11 is about the millennial kingdom. Verse 9, the Lord will be king over all the earth. And that day the Lord will be the only one, his name the only one. Verse 11, people will live in it, there will be no more curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. So that's the millennial kingdom. Verses 12 to 15 is about Armageddon, which, by the way, little inside baseball, is not a battle. We talk about the battle of Armageddon. There is no battle. It's just zap. It's not a contest. It's not a battle. It's just see ya. Okay? Uh, But that's in 12 to 15, and you can read that and see some of the really fun stuff that goes on, like, eyes rotting in their sockets and whatnot. (laughs) Then verses 16 to 21 is about the millennium. And verses 20 and 21, where we we want to end, all the way late, sorry. And that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. The cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. There will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Everything will be holy to the Lord. There'll be no need for distinctions. There's no and nothing unclean or unclean persons left. Everything is holy to the Lord. For those who are interested, I'm going to put up one more slide, but I'm going to, I'm going to pray. Um, and that's some of what the book of Zechariah tells us about Christ about Jesus. So anybody who's interested in that can jot it down. Keep it up for a couple minutes. Let's pray. I'm sorry. I apologize. Father, we, uh, we thank you for the book of Zechariah. We thank you, Father, that you didn't just drop us here on the planet and then leave us with no instruction, but that you told us and warned us and you tell us and warn us today. We pray, Father, that we would be attuned to your word, to your visions, to your sermons, to your oracles, and that we would live in a way that's consistent with our identity in you. Amen.